Hello and welcome to this episode of Take 15 podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Foster. Our guest today is Bonnie St. John. She's the best-selling author of Micro Resilience and How Great Women Lead. She's the first African-American to win Winter Olympic ski medals and is also president and CEO of the Blue Circle Leadership Institute. On today's show, you'll learn why micro resilience is the meta skill of the future and how to build communities of champions. We hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome, Bonnie. Thank you so much for being here. You have a really powerful message that you always have the choice to define yourself and then we get the chance to be the author of our own stories and you're a great example of this. Tell us what you learned by being in the Olympics. Well, uh, first of all, to define my own story as a person who's an amputee, I lost my leg at age five and it was a birth defect. So my leg was never normal. Growing up disabled, many decades ago, people with disabilities didn't go to gyms and work out. So, so having to take the effort to, to become strong and become an athlete, that was a big deal as a person with a disability. But also being black, there aren't a lot of African-Americans in Winter Olympics. In fact, I'm the first African-American to win a Winter Olympic medal. So, uh, so that was crazy. And then uh, my family had no money. I grew up in San Diego where there's no snow. So it, it's a crazy story. One-legged black girl from San Diego goes to the Olympics in skiing. And so you really had to be able to hold on to a crazy idea and be able to work towards it and uh, not believe in the odds. I mean, the odds were stacked against me, but just to keep trying and to keep uh, persevering through difficulties and setbacks. And I had to raise money. I had to move away from San Diego and hire my own coaches. And it was, it was very entrepreneurial, actually. So I really appreciate um, the business world. Did you expect to win any medals? I was not expecting to win. I was the third ranked one-legged woman when I was chosen for the US Paralympic team. And they only took three one-legged women on the team. So I was lucky to get to go. But um, when I went, my mother went, and it was the first time she ever saw me in a ski race. And uh, she didn't always get it. She was, you know, why are you taking time off from college and being a ski bum? So she was so excited when I got there and went down the first run and my time was the fastest in the world. I, I surprised everyone, including myself, but I had trained all summer on a glacier. I had trained with two-legged skiers. I just outworked everybody. So after the first run, I had the fastest time, but it takes two, time, two runs to win. And so I went back up to wait my turn and on the second run, which is completely different, different course, there was this dangerous spot and all the women were falling. And so when it came to my turn, I thought I just have to stay standing, you know, and I could win the gold. And I went down, I'm hitting the red and the blue poles and I get to where the dangerous icy spot is. And I think I'm, I made it, I'm gonna, and I fell. And I was so disappointed, you know, I just wanted to disappear, not to have to face my sponsors, my mother, you know, everything. But I grabbed my equipment, got over the finish line. And when the dust cleared, I was still in third position. I won the bronze medal, stood on the winner's podium, U.S. flag waving. But uh, the woman who won, uh, she hadn't beaten me in the first run. I had, I had beat everybody. And so how did she beat me? She also fell, but she got up faster. So the, the lesson I took away from that is people fall down 
winners get up. I got up and I finished. But the gold medal winner is sometimes just the person who gets up the fastest. So that's why I've been passionate about resilience and writing about resilience and how do we, can we all learn to get up faster and win? In fact, you've written a book called Micro Resilience, and I believe you termed the coin in 2011. And you like to say resilience is the meta skill of the future. So it seems more now more than ever, we all need to be more resilient. So how do we become more resilient? Well, it's, it's interesting. I love the way you said the meta skill too, because the people in this industry are so skilled. And if they have their charter, uh, their CFA charter, then they really, you know, have worked really hard to package those skills and to get the recognition for those skills. But resilience on top of that helps even the most highly skilled people, doctors, lawyers, judges, to be able to play their A game more of the time for those skills to really shine through. So um, we looked at physiology, neuroscience, psychoneuroimmunology, that's just fun to say, psychoneuroimmunology, um, positive psychology, a, a lot of research at a lot of different institutes and universities to look at what are the small hacks that can help us to be more resilient. So you've got all these great skills, you've got all this information, you know so much from your experience, but if your brain is really exhausted and not functioning, then you don't have access to all that. So um, for example, for your brain to be more resilient, there's a couple of different tips. Uh, one is is um, multitasking, is be beware of multitasking. So the research says that multitasking uh, can lower your IQ by 10 to 15 points. Uh, it can be like losing a night of sleep. Um, and so we, I'm not saying don't multitask, we, we have to. There's many times we have to and we have to take interruptions and we have to deal with surprises. But if you can carve out zones, that's what we call it in the micro-resilience research is, is if you can carve out zones where you can focus and be intentional about when am I multitasking and when am I not multitasking. Um, people who do this more intentionally find that they can get so much more done. So rather than, you know, some managers feel I've got to keep my door open, I've got to let people come in, but being able to carve out zones helps you to really get more done with more accuracy, more quality, more ability to innovate as well. Um, communicating with your team about that too, because we all have these needs and we're all interrupting each other with emails and IMs and things. So have a discussion with your team about how can we all get our work done, be able to get what we need from each other, but create zones of concentration. And maybe you get two or three a day, maybe you only get two or three a week, but just being intentional about it can really improve the quality of your work. So I heard something interesting today. One of the speakers was talking about how instead of talking about unconscious bias training, we should talk about inclusive leadership. And I know this is something you speak about uh, quite a lot. So how are inclusive leaders different and how can we all be more inclusive leaders? Well, inclusive leadership requires you to get out of your comfort zone and to think about people who are different. So one example is um, traditionally leaders will just rate their people. You're, you're really good, you're okay, you're not so great, you know? And often we're just comparing them to ourselves. Is, are you doing what I'm doing? And so an inclusive leader would think more about how can I bring out the best in everyone? And people might be very different. So it's not just there's one scale and you're a poor performer or a great performer, but how can I have great performers that are very different and doing it in their own way? So being willing to, to see that people are gonna thrive in different ways. 
Another, another actually a simple tip for people to be more inclusive is to think about um, the quiet people on your team. So if you're leading a discussion, if somebody's being quiet, can you bring them out? And what's powerful about that is that people are quiet for different reasons. Somebody might be quiet on your team because they're a woman and it's mostly men, or they might be quiet because they're from a foreign country and maybe English isn't their first language, or maybe they're just introverts and they're being shouted over by all the extroverts. So there could be so many different reasons why somebody's not speaking up. So taking the time to pull them out, and maybe you even as a manager need to go to them before the meeting and say, you know, I notice you don't talk a lot in our meetings. We really want to hear from you. So I'm going to call on you on this and be prepared to say something, you know. So there's, there's lots of ways to get people that aren't talking as much talking more. And that right there, that's more inclusive. Yes. I'd love to talk a bit about another book that you have written called How Great Women Lead. And the great story about this is that you co-authored it with your daughter, Darcy Dean. And in fact, it sounds like you traveled around the world together on this extraordinary mother-daughter journey. And you interviewed leaders such as Hillary Clinton, Sheryl Sandberg, Condoleezza Rice, uh, President of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. So, a couple of questions stacked on here. So one is why just focus on women? And what did you learn about how women lead that is different to men? And are there lessons that can go both ways for both men and women? I'll start with the third question okay. is How Great Women Lead is a wonderful book for men to read as well as women. And you know, if anyone's wondering, you know, why should I read it? Women read plenty of books by male leaders and we get a lot out of it, you can too. But also for men to think about reading it is you're probably gonna manage women at some point. Um, and one man I know said, I love this book because I get examples that I can use. I don't just have to use sports metaphors with male athletes. Yeah. You know, I have some female examples that I can use in conversation. Um, it's also great because you might have a female boss, you know, and so being able to understand that and certainly female clients. So there's so many good reasons to stretch yourself. And again, be a more inclusive leader, even if you're not a woman to read a book about women leaders. So lots of good reasons and just great stuff you can learn. Uh, so the other thing I would say is I wrote the book with my daughter. And part of that was a view to what is the future of women's leadership? And so what does my daughter need to know about how to be a great woman leader? And doing it with my daughter provided that perspective. It wasn't just about you know me as somebody who's, who's had a long career and here's my point of view and I'm interviewing these women, but to include her. And it really did change the way we asked the questions and the way we had the discussion that it was about the future, where is it going? What should she be doing? What should she be learning and, and cultivating? And, and she challenged me in the process as well. So one of the questions I believe you often began interviews was by asking, how do you define great leadership? So let me pose that question to you. How do you define great leadership? I, one of the definitions I love is that great leaders help people to see what they can't see. And especially now that change is accelerating so much and that we just, it's continuous now. It's not, change is not something that starts at point A and ends at point B, you know, it just, we're changing all the time. And so great leaders help people to see the future and help people to uh, move towards that future that they can't see and really paint the picture, the excitement and, and help people to see this is gonna be a better place, this is where we're going, this is what we need to do. And so that's one of my favorite definitions of leadership. 
That's great. I'd love to talk also a bit about the power of relationships. Um, you tell a story about a nurse who helped you push through pain as a child. And I'm wondering what you tell us about that experience and what you learned about that relationship. Wow. Um, yeah, in order to learn how to walk again, I had to take the stump of my leg where it was amputated and push on a scale to toughen up the nerve ending so I could bear weight on it. And I was five years old. It hurt. You know, I was crying. And this nurse would say, three pounds isn't enough. Push for five. You know, let's keep going. And uh, I hated that nurse. <laughs> but uh, what a gift she gave me, though, to be able to get through the hard stuff to get to a better place. And that was a lifelong lesson that was that was so important. And uh, and I, I'm, I'm grateful. And now what I realize too is that often as children, you have people that will push you, but when you're an adult, you, you have to recruit people to push you in that way, to get you to do something that's not comfortable, that's gonna make you stronger. We can only push ourselves so hard, but recruiting people into our lives like that nurse can help us to go places we wouldn't otherwise. So another very special person in your life, I'm not quite the, of the nurse category, was your ski coach and mentor. And I read that uh, his name was Warren Witherall. And you got a chance to go back 20 years later and talk to him about leadership. What did you learn? Talking to Warren Witherall 20 years after he was my ski coach was so great. When I was 17, I was asking, you know, how do I wax my skis? But 20 years later, I really wanted to know, how did you build so many champions? He was in the Hall of Fame for water skiing as well as snow skiing because he had uh, coached athletes and had world-class performers in, in both areas. But uh, when I went back, we talked for hours and hours, and I'll just share one thing that he said. He said, I never created champions one at a time. I created communities of champions because you can only push one person so far. But when you have groups of people who are all trying to be their best and they're cheering for each other, they're picking each other up when they fall down, they're sharing best ideas, everybody goes further. And literally, Warren Witherell helped the U.S. to become more competitive in alpine skiing. Before he founded Burke Mountain Academy, we had a hard time staying up with the Europeans. But uh, even our last Olympics, Michaela Schifrin was a Burke Mountain Academy student. So literally, by creating communities of champions, he helped the U.S. alpine ski effort to be more competitive in the world. I'm sure there's an application to creating communities of teams, right? So as you think of being a leader and you want to build your own team of champions in your team, there must be lessons that apply there too. Well, CFA is an example of a community of champions, right? Coming together in a, very, a number of different dimensions. We're here for the women's conference, but uh, many of the other conferences are helping people to uh, create these communities of excellence around different dimensions in the profession. And that's so powerful. And you can do this in your local chapter and at work, you can do this. And we, we started out talking about resilience as well. You can create uh, your own little communities of champions around resilience topics too. So the idea that together we're stronger than individually is, is so powerful. It's a great powerful note on which to end very positive. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. 
Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.